If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite your attention, please, to the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and today we're focusing on verses 24 through 26. Today's message is the last one in our series of following the theme of passing the torch in preparation for the transition that will soon take place as I reach the time of my retirement and uh, the Lord uh, leading us to call Dr. Vaughn to be our interim pastor. You were to have received a letter about Dr. Vaughn and uh, excited about his coming. He is a professor at Truett Seminary in, at Waco, connected with some kind of university down there that we've heard a little bit about uh, called Baylor Aspirin or something, wasn't it, I think. Anyway, Dr. Vaughn, I've not met him personally. I've talked with him over the phone to express our interest and excitement about his coming to be our interim pastor. I think you're going to enjoy him. He is from Denmark originally and was pastor for several years of First Baptist Church of Copenhagen. And he's been interim pastor on many occasions. I think he recently finished interim work at First Baptist Church of Lubbock. He doesn't have a real heavy accent, so you're not going to have a trouble, any trouble hearing him and understanding him. He's a wonderful person, uh, excited about it. You go on the internet and Google his name and, and uh, pull, pull up a picture on him and, uh, and even uh, go to YouTube and find a, a sermon that he preaches. So we're excited about his coming. He'll be here the first Sunday uh, if, of March, and I know that you'll be praying for him, that you'll uh, lift him up in prayer, that you'll be faithful in supporting him with your attendance and uh, with your support in every way. So he's used to being an interim pastor. He knows some of the things that needs to be done and said, and he'll, he'll be exciting to listen to and uh, will be a very helpful uh, pastor as an interim pastor for us in the, in the days that are ahead. So the Lord is guiding uh, that, and we trust that you'll be pleased with it as well. Continue to pray for our pastor search committee as they uh, receive the, uh, the recommendations and uh, so forth from uh, various places and people and uh, the tremendous responsibility that they have. We don't know who our next pastor will be. There's a, a wonderful unknown thing about that. It's exciting to, to know that we have to go day by day and week by week trusting the Lord to guide the search committee and to guide our church. Pray for our staff uh, as they continue to carry on the work. We're not going to miss a beat or a step, as we say, uh, in the days ahead. There's a lot to, that needs to be done and continue to be done. And I know that you're going to be faithful in your place as well. And the purpose of these messages that I've been sharing with you for the last six Sundays and today the seventh one, of course, is in preparation for that time when the torch of the gospel of Jesus Christ is passed on from myself to whomever the next pastor will be. And I know that the Lord will be honored and pleased because of the way that we go about it. So pray for Linda and me. Pray for uh, our future. We, it's unknown. We don't know exactly what the Lord is going to do for us and with us and through us. Uh, but we trust him. He's guided us this far. He's not going to let us down now. He's going to be with us every step of the way. And the same thing is true with you as a church family as well. But today we're looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24, 25, and 26. The title of the message is An Obedient Servant. So look at it, if you would, please. Verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. 
if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So this seventh figure of speech or metaphor has to do uh, with the pastor being a servant. In this case, a bond servant, a servant or a slave would be another way of translating it. A slave was an individual or is any individual who has no will of their own, no life that they can call their own. They are totally submissive to and at the mercy of the master. And this is true of the Apostle Paul, who throughout his letters refers to himself as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his book of Romans, I believe it is, he talks about having prior to his conversion experience, being a slave to sin. And all of us are, whether we remember it as such or not, whether we realize it as, as such or not. Before You see, you are a slave. All of us are slaves. It's just a matter of who is our master. If I'm not a Christian, then my master is the devil. Jesus said, if you commit sin, you become a slave to sin. So the devil will take control of you. He will call the shots. He will throw temptations in your way. And he, you do his will every time you yield to a temptation. You are yielding to the will of the devil. You are a slave to sin without Jesus. But when you became a Christian, when you accepted Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you became his slave so it's a matter of not of whether or not you are a servant or a slave, you are. You are now a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that uh, you, you don't own yourself. You, you're not your own boss. I know we're full of narcissism. We're self-centered and selfish individuals. But when you become a Christian, self comes off the throne of your life and Jesus sits on the throne of your life and your life doesn't revolve around you. It revolves around Christ. He is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And he is the one who tells you day by day through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit where you should go, what you should say, what you should think and the whole life. You are a slave of Jesus Christ. As a pastor, I'm a slave. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, it's, I've been seeking for all of these years of my life since I was a Christian and especially 54 years ago when I responded to God's call on my life to be a minister. And 51 of these years have been as a pastor that I've been a slave hoping, not always faithful. I'm, I'm not saying I'm perfect. No, by no means. I'm not a perfect person. I have fallen and I've, I've done things I shouldn't have done, said things I shouldn't have said, th gone to things I shouldn't have gone, but we all do. And, uh, and yet I'm saved and I thank God for forgiving me of those shortcomings and those trespasses. And I'm depending upon Jesus day by day to lead me and to guide me just as you. And what is required of me as a pastor can also be said of you as a Christian. We are all servants of the living God. Today's message uh, is entitled uh, An Obedient Servant, but it has to do particularly as we zero in on your, your responsibility as a servant of the Lord to witness for Jesus. That when you have an opportunity to share Jesus Christ with other people, how do you go about doing that? Is there a right way or a wrong way in being a witness for Jesus? A few days ago... The leading 
front page article of the Daily Sentinel was entitled Confrontational Evangelism. I don't know if you remember reading that article or not, but during that time there was a confrontational evangelist who came to the campus at SFA at the Freedom of Speech area and he confronted our college students, our university students. And uh, it, was, it was a tremendous confrontation. It, it ended up being an argument time, uh, uh, a resentful time in the way that, that he was presenting the gospel to our university students. And uh, his name, of course, is Jed Smock. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, Smock, S-M-O-C-K. A self-proclaimed confrontational evangelist. And he came to the campus, his message, uh, although he considered it a message of love uh, by himself, his wife, and those who work alongside him, many of the students that he addressed uh, felt uncomfortable in the way that he was attacking them, uh, instigating a demonstration. Uh, He shouted at them. He confronted them. He called them names. Uh, His wife insulted some of the uh, girls, the college student girls there, by the way they were dressed. Um, And their words were often met with mockery and heated arguments. You remember seeing the picture on the front page. One of the college students had a a head of a horse on his head, mocking him because of the way that he had had approached his witness to, to the college students. A common opinion among the students present, especially those who were affiliated themselves with Christianity, said that he felt that Smock's approach was a slap in the face to religion. He said it's driving people away from the Lord rather than to the truth. And another student said he believed that the problem was not necessarily in his message, but in the execution of it. How he presented himself, how he presented the gospel. How he comes off, this student says, represents the church as being a horrible, terrible thing of which no one should be appointed or be a part of. The dean of students, Dr. Speck, said, and I quote, When we have pastors or preachers that visit the campus, it always causes quite a commotion. Some of them have pretty outrageous beliefs. I do think that these visits test the limits of our tolerance for free speech. My plea to students, Dr. Speck says, is not to try to match the incivility that they receive from these groups, though I know that the temptation is awfully strong to just not retaliate in the same way. Well, he wasn't the only one who's been confrontational in the things that he's tried to do to reach people for the Lord. I remember W.N. Otwell. Remember Brother Otwell? Lives up here at Mount Enterprise. He always occasionally sends a group of people down here who stand on the street corner with signs that says, God hates homosexuals. Remember that? And uh, several years ago, I was preaching here and during the invitation time, Bobby, Brother Bobby comes down, our associate pastor. I thought maybe he was making a decision. (laughs) I didn't know. (laughs) Uh, But he came down here and he whispered in my ear and he said, uh, we are being picketed. Our church is being picketed. I had no clue, had no warning, had no idea, didn't know who it was, didn't know what they were there for. So I just simply said to you, I said, when you leave today, be careful. 
There are people across the street, they're picketing our church. And I don't know what it's all about. So I would just suggest don't try to argue with them. Don't try to confront them. Just uh, be nice and kind and go on your way. Well, they came back the next Sunday as well. For two Sundays in a row, our church was picketed by Otwell's group. I happened to know one of the individuals who was a member of that group. And so I saw him one day. I said, what was all that about? He said, well, the Daily Sentinel was running a cartoon strip in their newspaper about a family whose son was a homosexual. And he came in and announced to his mom and dad that he was. And we felt like that the church and you as a pastor should have stood up in opposition to that and demanded that the Daily Sentinel no longer print that comic strip. Well, I read the comics, but I never read that comic strip. You know, there's certain ones I like, I like Hagar the Horrible and, and uh, Blondie and, and, uh, thing, and now like Pickles. You know, Pickles is in the newspaper now. I identify with that more than anything else. But I had no idea what they were talking about. They not only picketed our church, they picketed the Methodist church as well. So we both got it, double shot. But is that the proper way to do that? To hand up a sign that says, you know, God hates you, God hates homosexuals. And and I'm not for homosexuality, but I'm not going to go around and say, I hate you. God doesn't hate people. He hates sin, but he doesn't hate people. And so, and then now, now we've got a group out of Wells, you know, who comes over here and and, and, and does somewhat the same thing, same attitude and, and so forth. I'm, I'm just saying to you, there are certain people in the world in their approach to share Jesus with other people are not choosing what I believe the scriptures is saying is a much better way to do it than what they are doing. You know, you, you'll collect a whole lot more honey if you don't kick over the beehive. And God forbid that you would knock down a hornet's nest. You, you'd live to regret it. So there is a way that Paul is suggesting that as a pastor or as a Christian, that you should approach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is one of the primary responsibilities of any church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a witness for, other, for him to other people. So with that in mind, then, I've divided the... In fact, let me give you this verse of scripture. This, we're not going to be looking at this. I just want to give it to you. Proverbs 20 and verse 3. Just write it down. Don't turn to it. Proverbs 20 and verse 3. Listen to it. Proverbs 23 says, Keep away from strife is honorable for a man, but any fool will quarrel. Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool can quarrel. Enough said. So, two things. I want us to look at the need for instructions and the result of these instructions. So, there are about four things or five things that Paul says should be characteristic of anyone who seeks to share Jesus and the message of the gospel with someone else. And the first one on your outline is that if you are sharing Christ with anybody, you are not to be quarrelsome. A bondservant who is a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ will not be quarrelsome in their witness for Jesus to other people. Look at it in verses 23 and 24. But refuse foolish foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. 
Now, we're not to be quarrelsome. The one translation says you must not engage in heated disputes, in heated disputes. One uses the word uh, quarrelsome as strife. The King James Version uses the word strife. You're not to strive. Uh, The word strive or quarrelsome, it's literally a military term. It talks about people who are battling one another, who are at war with one another. And Paul is saying, you're not at war with people. You are at war with the devil. Uh, You you are to be a good soldier, but you need to be careful in identifying who the enemy is. The enemy is not the person you're talking to. Your enemy is the devil. And yes, we are at war. We're to be good soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are not battling people. We are battling the devil. And so don't strive uh, with people. Uh, the, The New Living Translation says, Again, I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. It's just not going to end anywhere. It's all going to end up a mess. If you just argue and quarrel, and and, and the word quarrel, I was was looking up the meaning of the word quarrel, it it can also be translated wrangler. You ever buy any wrangler jeans? (laughs) The word wrangler means, it it literally goes back to the taming of wild horses and refers to any cowboy or cowgirl who handles horses that were once wild. And so when you wrangle with somebody, you're fighting somebody here. And Paul is saying, you're not supposed to battle somebody and and be resentful and all of these quarrel things. Now, this is the third time in verse 23 and 24 that Paul has warned Timothy about getting into a a word battle with somebody else. Look look at it, chapter 2, we're still in chapter 2, but look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. So you tend to get in an argument with somebody, you may win the battle, but you'll lose the person with the way you wrangle with words. You wrestle with words, you battle with them, and tit for tat and word for word, you come back with a better, clever statement than they gave to you. Oh, it may sound clever, and you may feel, man, I've done good in that, but you're losing a person simply by your attitude and your quarreling with them over matters. Now, notice in verse 24, he uses the word, uh, verse 23, the Lord's bondservant must. That word must means an obligation, that it's your responsibility. This is not something that is optional, that you can take it and leave it. This This is a command that the scripture is given to you. When you witness to somebody, you must not quarrel with them. So in verse 24, he says, Solemnly charge those who are in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of those who hear you. Look at verse 16. In verse 16, he says, But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. So be careful in what you say and how you say it. Now, the Apostle Paul, uh, the Bible is not saying that you can't discuss and even debate issues if it's done in the right way. Uh, Listen to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, in fact, take your Bibles 
and turn to the book of Acts and verse 29. Acts 9 and 29. So Paul, Paul was not opposed to proper discussion and or debating. He did that. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 29. Acts 9, 29 says... And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. So he was talking and arguing. Now, the New International Version says he talked and debated. So sometimes the, the word, you know, sometimes a, a Greek word can have more than one meaning. And so, meaning, so it can be translated debating or arguing, depending on the context. So Paul would go to these synagogues because he was a Jew originally, Always was. I guess he was just a, a Jewish Christian or Jew, Christian Jew. Uh, but, but he was used to going into the synagogue, discussing and debating issues, spiritual issues. And that's what he did with Christianity. Being a former a, a, a leader of the Jewish people, knowing how they think, knowing how they, uh, what they believed and why they believed what they did. He was well versed in that. So when he went into the synagogue, he could intelligently kindly debate and, and discuss with them the issues pertaining to Jesus. Now you're still in the book of Acts. Turn to chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 and look at verses 8 and 9. Acts 19 verses 8 and 9. Acts chapter 19 beginning with verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months. Doing what? Reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Notice the words that I'm reading out of the New American Standard. Reasoning and persuading. Verse 9, but, but notice in verse 9. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, he didn't continue arguing. They were speaking evil of what he had to say, but Paul withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannius. Tyrannius could have been the name of a, of a hall where he would go to or maybe a philosopher that he was referring to, uh, to the school of Tyrannius. But he got away from them. He didn't just stand there and argue and bicker with them and, 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 and get in a word battle with them. He, he talked about Jesus. He, he, he gave persuasive information uh, about the Lord Jesus. Uh, some of them believed, but then when they began to, to show resentment and hardness toward Paul, he withdrew. He got away from them because he didn't want to ruin any opportunity that he or someone else might come along later. Uh, you know, Paul talks about having sowing the seed and watering the seed and, and, and that you, you join with other people in the harvest. So, so there are some people that, that I've witnessed to but could not lead to the Lord. But I planted some seed. And who knows, somebody else may come along and, 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 and share the gospel on top of that. And they may lead that person to Christ based on what I shared with them plus what they did. Or maybe somebody else, a third or fourth or fifth one. It may be years after constantly witnessing to an individual who constantly said no, 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 no. And yet the Holy Spirit at the right time, the right moment, and the right conviction would take the witness of somebody who was gentle and kind and not quarreling with them and bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus. So we don't give up. It's always too soon to quit. But one of the characteristics is that when you share Christ with somebody else, don't be a quarrelsome person. 
The second thing is be kind to everyone. Be kind to everybody. Look at verse 24. Go back to verse 24, 2 Timothy chapter 2. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all. Not just a select people, but to everybody. You need to be kind to all people. I like the way the Amplified Bible translates this. He, uh, the Amplified Bible reads, He must be kind to everyone and mild-tempered, preserving the bond of peace. So you, you know, we are to, Jesus it was the prince of peace and, and we are to be messengers of peace. Blessed are, are, are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. So my responsibility as a Christian and as a pastor, but yours as well, is that you are to be kind to other people, especially when you witness to them. Your intention is to bring them peace and to let them experience a personal encounter with the Prince of Peace. So we need to be kind. We need to be gentle. We need to be meek and mild toward everyone. So we're not to be quarrelsome. We're to be kind to everyone. The third thing is that he is to be an able teacher. An able teacher. Notice he says in verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all able to teach. Not only able to teach, but willing to teach. So in order to be a, an able and willing teacher, you need to be qualified. You need to be able to share with them your personal experience. How can you share something with somebody that you've never experienced? So you, you, can, you can start off by saying, let me share with you how I came to know Christ as my Savior. And, and then launch off from that onto on how they could also come to, to uh, uh, to, to, to experience the, the forgiveness of God and, and the love of the Lord Jesus uh, in, in, in the right way. And, and, and then not only must I share my own personal testimony, I need to be acquainted with the scriptures. You, you need to have a, a track in your Bible or some kind of a card or something if, if you don't have a, 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 an order that you can follow what we call a plan of salvation or to keep it in your Bible, keep it in your shirt pocket or your purse, wherever, so that you can pull it out. We have plenty of tracks here in our church that make available to anybody. And you can take that track and you say, let me share with you how you can become a Christian and just go through that track with them. And, uh, and, and leave it with them. If they don't trust Jesus, then you can leave it with them. Go back later to them. But you've got to be acquainted with the scriptures. You've got to memorize some scriptures in order to be effective. You know, that's what Jesus did. He countered the devil by using the scriptures. And uh, Paul talked to Timothy. He, he said, you knew the scriptures from when you were just a little child. That's why we have Sunday school. That's why we encourage parents to teach your children about Jesus. Teach them about scriptures. That's why we have vacation Bible school. That's why we have a children's building. So that we can teach our children about Jesus and how they can learn to love Jesus and share Jesus with other people. That's why we have mission friends and RAs and GAs. All these things that we do with our boys and girls and to our adults. That's why we have Bible study and Sunday school for you so that you can come and learn the scriptures and study the scriptures and hide it in your heart that you might not sin against God and that you'll be fully equipped to go out and share Jesus Christ with other people. You cannot do that without being acquainted with the scriptures because it's God's word. And you need to be an able teacher. I want you to take your Bibles, keep your place here at 2 Timothy, but turn over to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. 
1 Peter chapter 3. And uh, let's look at, because of time, 1 Peter chapter 3. Well, let's begin with verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayers. For the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But, verse 14, if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But notice verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So what he's saying in verse 15 is you need to be ready. You need to be ready, as we, as we would say, at the drop of a hat to be able to explain someone who would ask you, how did you get saved or why are you a Christian? Why do you go to church? Why do you, be, why are you, do you live a good life? And he says you need to be ready, prepared, so that with gentleness and loving concern, you can share Jesus with them and how he changed your life. But you're not going to do it if you're quarreling and re- building up resentment in, in your life. So you need to be an able teacher, able and willing. The fourth one is to avoid resentment. Notice, go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. But the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong. Patient when wrong. You know, sometimes I've been cussed out trying to witness to somebody before. I, I remember one time, and, and no, I, this is one way not to do it. I was in a revival over in Commerce, Texas. And uh, we went out one day to, to, uh, to witness to somebody who had visited the church. And we were trying to find where this person lived, and we were having trouble finding it. And we came up on a duplex, and the address the pastor had showed that this was where it was. So we got out and we went up on the porch. It was a duplex. When we walked up on the porch, uh, porch uh, uh, there were two doors there. One door had a screen door and the door was open. We saw a man sitting in there. And uh, I noticed when we walked up to the, to the door, uh, they, it had been nailed shut. I mean, somebody had driven nails in it, bent them over so you couldn't go in and out that door. I guess it was a duplex, but you could somehow get out the other door. So this guy came to the door and the pastor said that we were looking for so-and-so. And said, oh, this isn't, where, this isn't the place. So we decided we'd start witnessing to him. Oh, I know all about that Jesus stuff. I used to be a Sunday school teacher myself, but Jesus came up the ladder of evolution just like all the rest of us did. Well, I opened my mouth. <laughs> I said, evolution is a lie. That man kicked open the screen door. Literally did. We ran for our lives because when I walked up on... 
And the reason why, because when I walked up on that porch, I looked in there and there was a shotgun leaning by the door. <laughs> I wasn't hanging around. For the first time in my life, hair on the back of my head stood up. I just knew I was going to get buckshot, you know where. You don't always win them. <laughs> but you, res you avoid resentment. You're, you're, you're not there to argue. William Barclay said, There may be greater sins than touchiness, but there is none which does greater damage in the Christian church than just, you know, we're quick to, to uh, take offense. Oh, I'm offended by that person or what they said. We're slow to forgive. Slow to forgive. But there's power in a life that refuses to quarrel and is gentle with detractors. Patient. Don't be resentful. Patient means the ability to hold up when somebody says something to you that's wrong or treats you in a wrong manner, being evil without resentment. The fifth thing is he is to humbly correct his opponents. Verse 24 and 25, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. See, that's what you're there for. You realize that if, if we were to choose sides, here's good and here's evil, here's God and here's the devil. And they are on the devil's side, whether they realize it or not. And what you're attempting to do and witnessing to them is to convince them and help them to, to see the error of their way. You, you know, before, before, I heard an evangelist tell one time, he said, before you get anybody saved, you've got to get them lost. And what he meant by that is you, you've got to come to the understanding and accept the fact that you are lost and separated from God. You are a sinner. And if you don't get saved, you're going to die and go to hell. Now, you don't say it you know, so abruptly like that, but that, that's the intent. Because he says the devil has set a trap for them. And they are blinded by the gospel. And you are trying to help them to come to the light and behold the light, to realize how sinful they are and how incapable they are of doing anything to save themselves. And once they come to that kind of conclusion, then they can get to Christ. So the purpose of witnessing is to, we use the term, not necessarily, but to correct them. They're on the broad and wide way that leads to destruction. We're trying to get them redirected to the straight and the narrow road that leads to life. So correcting means bring them to maturity in the Lord. Now quickly, there are three, three results. If you will follow these instructions, three things, according to Paul, will happen. First of all, there will be repentance from error. Look at it in verse 25. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. Grant them repentance. So what he's saying here is that, the, you know, you can't be saved without the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's responsibility is to convince and to convict you of sin. I'm not the one that convicts you about sin. I'm just the messenger boy. And I'm just sharing with you what the Scripture says about your needing to be saved. But it's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to convict you. The word convict means to prick you in the heart. You begin to feel guilty on the inside. That's the Holy Spirit dealing with you. And it's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to convict you and to convince you that Jesus Christ is the only answer to your sin problem. And so it's God who brings you to repentance. God, the Holy Spirit. Not only repentance from the error, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, but the second thing is to awaken them to the truth. 
Look at verse 25 and 26. Leading to the knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses. That's how you became a Christian. That under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, you begin to realize that you are a sinner and the Holy Spirit is showing you that Jesus is the only way, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the Holy Spirit convicts you and convinces you that Jesus is the only answer and uh, that you come to your senses. Go back in your mind to the 15th chapter of Luke's gospel and the prodigal son. You remember who demanded for his portion of the inheritance. He went off into the big city, wasted all of that, ended up during the drought and the famine uh, in the pig pen, eating the very food that he was feeding the hogs. What does the Bible say? He came to himself, which is another way of saying he came to his senses. He said to himself, the servants back home better off than I am. I'm going to get up from this pig pen and I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. Notice he said he, first of all, sinned against heaven because that's what sin is. Sin isn't against you so much as it is, and, and sin against other people. Sin, first and foremost, is against God. You have sinned against God, but you also sinned against those that you harm. And so you've got to begin by saying, Lord, you know, I've been in the darkness all this time. My eyes have been blind. The devil, the Bible says the devil blinds your eyes, the eyes of your soul to understanding your need to be saved. And so when you get saved, the, the Lord just lifts those shades off of your eyes, if I could describe it that way, that's blinded you from the truth. And, you know, Bible says in John chapter 3 that light has come into the world and men love darkness more than they love light because if they come to the light, they've got to give up their sins. So Jesus is the light of the world and, and, and it's the Holy Spirit who helps you to see the truth of Jesus and the truth of sin. The truth of sin is the, the soul that sins shall die. But the truth of Jesus is that if, if you would trust him as Lord and Savior, you'll live forever. If you drink of the water that he has to offer, you'll never thirst again. If you eat the bread that he has to offer, you'll never be hungry again. And it's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to bring you to the truth so that you can be saved. And then the third thing is that you escape from the devil's trap. It says in verse 26, and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So you're a slave. If you're without Jesus Christ, you are a slave to the devil and you are a slave to sin. Now, verse 26 is one of the most difficult passages to interpret. It can be interpreted two ways. How do you, how do you interpret his and him? They may come to their senses and, and be saved by him to do his will. Him and his. Who is that? Well, some say it's, uh, it's, it's the Lord and the devil that, uh, that you are held captive by the devil to do the Lord's will. That's one way of interpreting it. Another way of interpreting it is that uh, it, it's both references to the devil. That you, you have been snared of the devil, having been held captive by the devil to do the devil's will. And I think the latter translation is the more accurate one. Again, you know, the devil has a will for your life too. We talk about God's will for your life. The devil has a will for your life too. And if you are, are without Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a captive to the devil and you do the devil's will. You know, if you don't believe that, go back and read 5th chapter of the book of Romans. 7th chapter of the book of Romans where Paul says, things I ought to do, I don't do, and things that I should do, I don't do. Woe is me, I'm undone, he said. 
You know, you are a slave to God or a slave to the devil. There's not a third one. Not a third one. So he's saying you've been caught in the trap of the devil. But when the truth comes, it sets you free. Sets you free. Now quickly, let me conclude with this. Any believer can be and is called the Lord's servant. I know the context that we've been looking at today has to do with the pastor. The pastor is a servant. I'm a servant. The next pastor who follows me will be a servant. The interim pastor will be a servant. But folks, what's good for the goose is also good for the gander. It's not just the pastor. I don't have an exclusive patent on being a servant of the Lord. If you name Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you are as much a servant as I am. Any believer and every believer has the designation of being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a servant, a Christian servant, we have a master and his name is Jesus. On one occasion, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus and said to him, Would you grant it that when you come to your heavenly kingdom to give my two sons the position, one to sit on your right side and the other to sit on your left side? And Jesus said to her, You don't know what you're asking for. You don't understand what that is really all about. And when she left, the disciples got all upset because they didn't think of asking that themselves for the first time. And Jesus said, you listen to me. You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Then you've got to be a servant. A servant. Not self-willed. Not self-controlled. But God-willed. And God-controlled. And God can use you in that way. Jesus talked about it. We're out of time. The ministry, the minister, the, my, my position as a pastor, the next pastor. You know, you laugh and joke about the preacher. You only work one hour a week. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. But I eat well. Okay. <laughs> the ministry is no place for a loafer. I spend hours studying. It demands discipline. And it demands work. Same thing true of a Sunday school teacher. If you're a Sunday school teacher, don't you dare wait until Saturday night to start preparing a lesson. It calls for hard work and discipline and sacrifice. There have been a lot of times that I want to do something else and I realize I got a responsibility when Sunday morning comes and Sunday night comes. I'd better be prepared. And I hope and pray that in all of my 54 years of preaching the gospel, that I never entered any pulpit unprepared. Never. Now, it may not have been as good as some of the others were, but I've done my best. And I realize that I'm human, and I can't say that I did it 100% of the time. But I think self-evaluation with the Holy Spirit, I'm up there pretty high in preparing. And it ought to be true of you as a Christian how much time do you spend every week? Whether you're a Sunday school teacher or not, do you ever spend time in, in the Bible? Do you have a study Bible? Do you come to Sunday school? Do you come on Sunday night? Do you come on other times when you have an opportunity to study the Word of God and learn something else so that you can grow and mature? It'll cost you something. It'll cost you some sweat and blood and tears in your soul. It demands discipline and work. It's no place for a shirker because there are enemies to fight and tasks to be completed. So we need to pray for the pastor search committee. 
We need to pray for that person out there that God is preparing to pick up the torch and carry on with the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ as I pass it on to that individual. And no pastor, no pastor can do the job alone. Pastors and church members must labor together for the work of the Lord, for we are all servants of the living God. Let's bow together. Father, how thankful we are that we have a message that the world so desperately needs to hear. We dare not be selfish and stingy with it. We need to be prepared and ready at any moment, at any given time, when the opportunity comes our way that we can gently, kindly, lovingly share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who are in desperate need to hear it and who need to be rescued from the snare of the devil's trap. We thank you that our church is a lighthouse in this community and ultimately to the whole world. And may we always be faithful in passing that torch to others and lifting up Jesus Christ as the light of the world who alone brings salvation to those who trust him. And as we turn now our attention to this time of invitation, Holy Spirit of God, you take control of every heart and mind and soul and every person who's here today. And whatever your will is for them, whether to be saved or to join our church or rededicate their lives or whatever it may be, Holy Spirit of God, have your way and your will with every person. And we'll praise Jesus for it, in whose name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Andre is going to lead us. And if God's Holy Spirit is leading you to come, please do so.